in the back in the sanctuary. I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. So we continue our study through the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. That's on page 1051, 1051 if you're using a pew Bible. John chapter 3, page 1051. Whenever I have uh, traveled outside of the United States, which isn't very often, I haven't traveled abroad that often, but the, the few times I've gone, I have always been obsessed with the location of my passport. Maybe those of you who travel abroad more often uh, are relaxed about it, but for whatever reason, for me, it, it's like going to Disneyland with a three-year-old. I'm constantly aware of where my passport is, and I kind of obsess about it. I, I don't really obsess about a lot of things, but for whatever reason, I obsess about that. And I'm always thinking, you know, is it in that special purse that I have, the straps around my belt, you know, stomach, under my shirt? Is it in this pocket? I check the pocket again. I check the pocket. You know, I'm checking my backpack. But, and, and it's because, you know, as much as I love traveling abroad, as much as I love seeing other places, at some point I want to go home. And, and, you know, you have to have that passport to get home. You could have great luggage. You could be dressed like a world-class traveler. You, you could look the part. But if you don't have that document and you come to U.S. Customs, a driver's license ain't going to cut it. You need the passport. And conversely, I could be traveling abroad and I could get mugged and someone could take all of my luggage and, and I could have just shabby clothes and sweatpants and a t-shirt and, and, and just kind of you know, stumble onto the plane not having showered and having slept in the street because I didn't know what to do. But as long as I have my passport, I could get my ticket and I could stand before the, the customs guy in the U.S. and say, U.S. citizen, and he could say, you know, okay, he goes, stamp, and let me go through. It's the one thing you, you need to enter. And I tell that because it, it, it's sort of what, kind of an image I was thinking of as, we're, as I was looking at this text we're going to study this morning, where Jesus describes the one thing you must have if you want to enter the kingdom of God. It is a bit of a passport. It's the one thing that you could be dressed like someone who you would think would enter the kingdom of God, but if you don't have this one thing you will be denied entry. And what is the one thing you must have to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you must be born again. Look at our text. John 3. Let me just read the first three verses. We're actually going to go through verse 12, but I'll just start with the first three verses. It says, Now there was a man among of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It's a remarkable passage. 
In some ways, a famous passage. Even if you've never read that Bible verse before in your whole life, you've probably heard talk of being born again. You know, what does that mean? And here's Jesus laying it down as an absolute requirement. He says, I tell you the truth. In Greek, it's amen, amen, I say to you. It is a super emphatic way of saying what I'm laying down for you now is absolute truth that you need not question, that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. I don't know a lot about heaven. I don't know what exactly it's like. I I don't know what happens when I die. I don't know if, if they'll see a bright light or a tunnel, you know. I mean, who knows? But I know this, that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. What does this mean? Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's try to put this verse in context and understand the story. So we have this guy who comes to Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. It's very interesting that his name is given. That often doesn't happen with people in the gospel stories. They just sort of, they show up in the scene and Jesus talks to them. But here we meet this man named Nicodemus. And in this short little text, we learn four things about him that I think are important that are going to help us realize how amazing it is what Jesus says in verse 3. So four things we learned about Nicodemus. Number one, he's a Pharisee. It says in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Maybe you've heard of the Pharisees. In Jesus' day, they were the probably predominant religious Jewish sect. They, um, They were purists. They were people who were all in in Judaism. Um, You you know, uh, New England's a heavily Roman Catholic area, and you'll hear people say, well, I'm Roman Catholic, but I don't really practice. Or they'll say about somebody else, yeah, he's Roman Catholic, and he goes to Mass every day. He he practices. He belongs to Opus Dei. You know, he's very serious about his Catholicism. If you use that to sort of talk about the Pharisees, the Pharisees would be in the latter camp, very serious about Judaism. Uh, In fact, not only were they stringent about trying to keep the written law of God, the Torah, they were also very adamant about trying to keep what was known as the oral law, which was sort of a series of traditions that had been handed down. It's technically called the halakha. They tried to keep the halakha as well as the Torah. And so there was all these traditions of the rabbis that they kept as well because they wanted to make sure that they were doing it right. Uh, And so they were known for being very... Um, specific and uh, about, you know, tithing and praying and fasting. And they were very fastidious when it came to making sure that they didn't associate with people who weren't trying to follow God closely. So they had a very kind of strong sense of boundary between themselves, Jews who were trying to be faithful Jews, and others, including other Jews who were disobeying God's law. There was a very strong in and out kind of sense to them. So that's the first thing we learned about him. This guy was not just talking the talk. He was walking the walk. He was really devout in his faith. Secondly, we see that he was a man of stature. It says in verse 2, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. The Jewish ruling council is sometimes called the Sanhedrin. There were 70 men in the Sanhedrin, and these 70 men were the final say on religious matters for all Jews in the world. They were kind of like the Supreme Court of Judaism, as well as having some legal authority within the, the province of Judah. But, but these were the guys who were looked to as, as sort of the leadership body, and Nicodemus was one of them. 
So he wasn't just some pious guy faithfully following God in obscurity. He had somehow distinguished himself or set himself apart so that he was now a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a man of stature. You, you know, if, if he was a, a Roman Catholic, he might have been like an archbishop or a cardinal. If he was an evangelical Protestant, he might have been, I don't know, the, the pastor of a mega church who's written 30 books and speaks at all the conferences and is always quoted on the back of everyone else's books. He, he would have been someone who people looked to and said, you know, th- this is a person we trust. This is a person who leads us and guides us. So he's very devout. He's a member of the ruling council. A third thing we see about him is that he is a teacher. You know, look down at verse 10. We'll get to this verse in a minute. Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. So probably Nicodemus is what we might call a scribe or a lawyer in other parts of the Gospels. He's, a, he's an expert in God's law. He's not just a layman. He's an expert trained. You know, we might say he has like a PhD in, uh, in the Bible. He's smart, erudite, trained. You go to him for the hard questions, for the Bible answer man kind of questions about God's Word. He's the kind of guy who could take the complex and break it down and make it simple so you could get it. So he's devout, he's honored, he's erudite, learned. And the fourth thing I notice about him is that He's open to Jesus, which is interesting because most of the Pharisees in the Gospels are always opponents of Jesus. I mean, by and large, you bump into the Pharisees, and they are scheming to try to kill Jesus or undermine him or doubt him. So this is a unique guy. So he's one guy among the Pharisees who's sort of a sympathetic character. And in fact, he's going to appear two more times in the Gospel of John, and he always appears as a sympathetic character. So he's kind of the the minority report among the Pharisees. He's the guy who's kind of going, guys, I'm not sure we're going in the right direction here. I I think we need to listen maybe to what Jesus is saying. In fact, look what he says in verse 2. He says, he came to Jesus at night. Interesting that he comes at night. Perhaps he did it because he was a little nervous about going to Jesus. Maybe, he, maybe the night signifies his, his spiritual condition. But he says, Rabbi, he calls him Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus calls him Rabbi. Nicodemus, a great father in Israel, honors this unknown Jesus, this unknown peasant from Nazareth, by elevating him and calling him rabbi. So he speaks to him rabbi to rabbi. So, so from a kind of a Jewish social perspective, Nicodemus has done Jesus a great honor by lifting him up and saying rabbi. So this is, this is a sympathetic character. He's open to Jesus. He is a seeker. He's, he's looking for something. He's open to asking questions, and so he's open-minded. You know, what a remarkable person. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus, verse 3, this is just a bombshell. In light of verses 1 and 2, verse 3 is a bombshell. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, amen, amen. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's just remarkable. It's remarkable that the posture Jesus takes. 
You know, Nicodemus sort of treats him as an equal, and he says, Rabbi. And Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you for calling me, Rabbi. I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. It's like Nicodemus raises Jesus here, and Jesus goes, actually, I'm right here. And let me just tell you what it takes for you to enter God's kingdom. I will be the gatekeeper and tell you what it is to go in. Like, what? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I mean, this would have been scandalous in this culture and in this time. If, if any Jew would have been welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, it would have been Nicodemus. You think about this. He's, he's the epitome of faithful people of God, a faithful son of Israel. If anyone would have made it in, he would have. I mean, it, it would have been scandalous for Jesus to say this. He's learned. He's faithful. He's devout. He is honored. He, he's even open to Jesus. He has, uh, he's not closed. And yet Jesus says to him, if you're not born again, if you don't have this passport, all that other luggage isn't going to get you through customs. This is what you need to see the kingdom of God or to enter it. Look at your uh, sermon notes. I put this little insert in your bulletin. Take this out for a minute. It's just some scriptures we're going to look at here. But if you look on the very back, there's a quote from um, one of my favorite scholars, his name's Don Carson, he wrote a, a commentary on John that uh, is so helpful, so, so useful so many times. But he says, uh, look at this quote from him. He says, what must be seized from Jesus' insistence on the new birth as the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom is the fact that this, this truth is applied to a man of the caliber of Nicodemus. If Nicodemus, with his knowledge... Gifts, understanding, position, and integrity cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works. What hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? Even for Nicodemus, there must be a radical transformation, the generation of new life comparable to physical birth. Boy, that just hits it on the head. If Nicodemus can't make it based on his credentials, religious, spiritual, moral, education, openness, how do I think I have any hope of making on my credentials? I think this verse is not only scandalous in Nicodemus' day, I think this verse completely flips the conventional wisdom today about spiritual things. Because I think people today would say that Nicodemus is exactly the kind of guy who would make it into heaven or eternal life or whatever it is on the other side that we all hope we make it to if there is such a thing. If anyone would have made it, people today would say, because people today say, look, be a good person, be sincere, have faith, be spiritual, you know, be open, be open to truth, don't be closed-minded, you know, and oh, this is Nicodemus. He's all of those things. He epitomizes the kind of person who we think would make it into God's kingdom today, however that may be conceived by people today. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you don't have the new birth, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You know, you could be very, very Roman Catholic. You could be catechized, confirmed, christened. You could have gone to parochial schools. You could be ordained as a priest. But if you haven't been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You could be super Protestant. You, know? you could be dedicated. 
You could have gone to Sunday school your whole life, gone to vacation Bible school. Like so many of our teens this weekend, you could have gone to the youth groups and the youth retreats. At the youth retreats, you could have gone forward at an altar call five times and prayed the prayer to receive Jesus, as we like to say in evangelical circles. But if you haven't been born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I can go to church. I can tithe. I can try to read my Bible. I can get one of those cool Bibles that lets you read through it in a year and divides it up by the days, and I can faithfully do that. Three years in a row, I can be on committees. I can serve. I can go to the men's retreat. But if I have not been born again, it's all just luggage and traveler's clothing. I lack the passport to enter the kingdom of God. I must be born again. I can scrupulously avoid sin. I cannot drink one drop of alcohol, not even on New Year's Eve. I could avoid R-rated movies. I could eschew Lady Gaga. I could avoid trick-or-treating because Halloween is the devil's holiday. But if I have not been born again, I will find myself standing with Nicodemus at the entry point of the kingdom of God with the huge sign over the entry point in every language saying, no entry beyond this point unless you are born again. It is an absolute command. It's remarkable. Well then, uh, I suppose I should find out what it means to be born again. (laughs) I guess I need to figure this one out. Nicodemus was completely flummoxed. It it totally threw him for a loop. This was not the conversation he was expecting to have with Jesus. He he thought this would be sort of interesting to beat this rabbi, but Jesus drops the bomb, and Nicodemus is reeling. Verse 4, how can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. What are you talking about? Just a little side note, that the Greek word for again, born again, can also be translated born from above. So there's a little ambiguity in what Jesus is saying. It could mean born again. It could mean born from above. It could mean both. Jesus seems to be fond of ambiguous things, especially in the Gospel of John. But Nicodemus takes it in the former sense. How can I be born again? You know, I'm You can't be talking about physical birth, Jesus. What are you talking about? What does all this born-again talk mean? So Jesus explains it in verse 5. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So Jesus tries to explain what it means to be born again. Just going back to verse 5, notice verse 5 is essentially a restatement of verse 3, except with a few words changed. So verse 5 is an attempt to explain verse 3. 
So verse 3, he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? Verse 4. And verse 5, Jesus says, okay, let me re-say it. I tell you the truth, verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God. So he changes seed, the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, but kind of same difference. Unless he is born, what? Of water and spirit. So he replaces born again with born of water and spirit. So that's what it means to be born again. To be born again means to be born of water and spirit. Perfectly clear? (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay, I I thought you were going to explain this, Jesus. All right, so born again, what does that mean? Well, it means born of water and spirit. Huh? How does that clarify anything? What does that mean? Well, two observations on verse 5. One is that whatever born of water and spirit means, it's parallel to being born again, which tells me that that being born of water and spirit is most likely one thing, not two things. So, So in other words, born again is the same thing as born of water and spirit. It's one thing. That's the parallelism. That's important because I think one of the ways that verse 5 is often misinterpreted is that some people have said, well, born of water probably refers to Christian baptism, and born of spirit refers to some kind of spirit baptism. Like there's two steps. Or I've heard people say, born of water maybe refers to like being physically born and, you know, you're in amniotic fluid or something weird like that. And, and being born of spirit is, is a spiritual birth, as if it's talking about two things. But again, look at the parallelism. Water and spirit, I think, have to be taken as one thing. So whatever it means, those two things are parallel. Here's a second observation. It's that whatever being born again or being born of water and spirit means, it's something that Nicodemus should already have understood by virtue of being an expert in the Bible. Look at verse 10. This is so helpful. He says in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher. Do you not understand these things? You've got the PhD in the Hebrew scriptures. You should get this. How come you don't know what I'm talking about? So I think the way to answer what does it mean to be born again, Jesus is saying, is we've got to go back to the Old Testament. When Jesus says you must be born again, he's just restating something that had been taught in the Old Testament that Nicodemus, as supposedly an expert in the Old Testament, should already have known. Jesus is like, why don't you get this? You're supposed to be the guy with all the answers. So what is it then? What does it mean to be born again? And as we go back to the Old Testament, what what I think he's referring to is, is a group of texts, a constellation of texts, in which God promises in the future to change the heart of his people through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a change of the heart. In other words, in the Old Testament, there are all of these texts that look forward to a coming day when the Messiah would come, when the kingdom of God would come, and all these great things would happen when the Messiah would come. Sins would be washed away from God's people. God would turn, uh, he would make a new covenant with his people. He would He would wash out his enemies and establish his kingdom with his people in it. And he would change the hearts of his people. Because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, Israel was in God's physical kingdom. It was the physical land of Israel, but their hearts weren't changed. That was the problem. They had all the laws, they had all the rules, but their hearts were hard toward God. And God says, in the new covenant, in the messianic age, when the Messiah comes, when my kingdom is fully established 
then I'm going to change your heart. So not only are you externally in my kingdom, but internally you want to love me and obey me. Look at your sermon notes again. Let me show you some of these verses. And this is all done through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Look at the first quote there, Ezekiel 11. He's, God promises in that future time, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They, then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The reason Israel didn't want to keep God's laws is because their hearts loved idols and loved sin more than they loved God. So God says, I'm not only going to give you my kingdom, I'm going to change your heart. Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and blessings on your descendants. So the spirit is symbolized by water being poured out. Or Jeremiah 34 uh, is is a famous passage where God promises a new covenant. And notice that part of this new covenant is a changed heart. Look about halfway down uh, in that quote. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel at that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. God promises as part of the new covenant to not only wash our sins away, but change our hearts so that we want to love and obey him. Perhaps most important is this, this fourth one, Ezekiel 36. Check this out. Same prophet, same idea, different language, but again, notice the spirit in the water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So I think that's what Jesus is pointing back to. He's just using different language, as he often does. He, he, you know, he uses his own language, his own words, but it's the same idea. Water and spirit, born from above, born again. You know, he says in verse 6, John chapter 3, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You know, you're talking about physical birth, Nicodemus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the spiritual birth. You should not be surprised at my saying this. Don't you know your Bible, Nicodemus? Come on. This is something that we've been waiting for. This is something that God has prophesied. And now I'm telling you, you cannot enter this kingdom unless your heart is changed. And again, that was Israel's problem. They had all the laws. They had all the rules. They had all the religion. They had all the ceremonies. The bags were packed. The traveler's clothes were on in the Old Testament. But they consistently broke God's law. Why? Because their hearts didn't love God. Their hearts loved idols. Their hearts loved sin. Their hearts loved themselves. And what was true of Israel is true of us. Israel is a microcosm of the human condition. We as human beings have hearts that are turned away from God. Even with our spirituality and our religion and our morality, we, we love our idols. We love our things. We love our desires. We love our pride. We love our status. We love ourselves. But we don't love Jesus. It's not our natural DNA. You know, I, I have a dog, um, a little terrier named Princess Leia, and uh, I see so much of myself in my dog, it's really scary, but, you know, my, I, I, I've eventually figured out here, my dog really only has one purpose. She has one drive. There's only one thing she wants to do, 
eat. That's what they do. From the time I let her out of the crate until the time I put her in, she is constantly looking for food. That's all she, and, and I think, you know, she loves me or whatever. She doesn't. She'd, she'd drop me in a heartbeat if someone had more food. It's all about the food. So, so this Christmas, we, we got her a little red um, Santa sweater, and she looked. So, you know, I'm walking my dog, you know, Christmas break, and she has the Santa outfit on. And, you know, we called her Santa Paws and all this, you know, kind of stuff. But, um, you know, we're all in the Christmas spirit. But you know what she wanted? Food. You can dress the dog up. You can make her look cute. But her nature is dog, and it wants food. And, and I look at myself, and it's like, that's my natural state, is I'm just like a dog. I want my sin. I want my idols. I want my recognition. I want my respect. I want things my way. I want my desires filled now. This is what I want. It's, like, it's just like a dog returning to its vomit, like this, the scriptures say. My prom- and, and you can dress me up. You can put me in a church. You can send me to seminary. You can put pastor's robes on me with a little stole like a war at Christmas, and I can look religious. But if my heart isn't changed, I cannot enter the kingdom of God. What I need is God to put a love for Jesus into me. It's New Year's resolution time. We're resolving all kinds of things, and that's good. You know, I, I kept my a couple of my resolutions last year. I was so proud of that. But there's one resolution you will always fail if you try to make it, and that resolution is, I want to start loving Jesus. You can't make yourself do that because your heart, like my heart, doesn't love Jesus. Think about it this way, naturally speaking, without God's changing power. Think about it this way. We're talking about entering the kingdom of God. Why do I think I could enter the kingdom of God if I didn't love the king? If Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and I don't love him, and I don't really want to obey him. And, and as Pierre saying, there isn't anything in me that's saying, I want to know you more. And, and you know, th- th- there isn't a drive or any kind of flame, not even a little pilot light of flame, not even a candle in me that says, I want to love Jesus. I love him. I want to obey him. Then why do I think I belong in his kingdom? You know? Nicodemus respected Jesus. Many people respect Jesus. New Age gurus see him as a fellow guru who reached some kind of enlightenment. Muslims see him as a prophet. Uh, moral people who don't ascribe to any religious religion in particular look at Jesus and say he was a good moral teacher. You can respect Jesus. You can honor Jesus. You can admire Jesus. But if you don't love Jesus, if you don't obey him and trust him alone as Savior and Lord... You cannot enter the kingdom of God. And to do that requires a transformation of the heart. Only God can put a love for Jesus Christ within your soul. Go ahead and try it. I dare you. Make a New Year's resolution. I want to hear how it goes. Try to force yourself to love Jesus. You can't do it. It's just not within us. 
It's not enough to be a seeker. It's not enough to be open. It's not enough to be good and moral. If you don't love the king, if you don't worship the king, if you don't trust the king Jesus as your all in all, as your Savior and Lord, if that isn't your heart condition, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be born again. Do you want to know if you're born again? How do I know? I mean, I think I'm a decent person. You know, I, I, I bike for a cure, and I, I serve at the PTO, and I, I changed my light bulbs for the fluorescent ones to help save the planet. You know, I, I think I'm okay. Look in your heart. Do you find within you love and obedience anywhere for the Lord Jesus Christ? That is what a new heart looks like above all else. It is the supreme mark of a Christian is love for Christ. Not just respect, not just admiration, but love, treasuring Christ and obeying Him. So how do you get that? So if you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again, and being born again means having a new heart that loves Christ, which we can't really do on our own, how do you get there? What, what, do, you, what do I do? What's the process? What's the program? Is there something I have to do, certain steps I have to follow? And the answer we see here is that it's something that God has to do. Only God can change the heart. That's what we saw in all these Old Testament texts. It was God promising, you know, that the pronoun there is I. I will give them an undivided heart. Isaiah 44, I will pour out water. Jeremiah 34, I will make a new covenant. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water. God has to change the heart. We can't change it on our own. Or look at John chapter 3. Notice again the language of being born again. You know, you're born. Babies don't birth. Babies are born. It's passive language. It's something that happens to you. God does it. And, and we sort of go along for the ride in some sense. Um, even the language of being born again versus born from above, that idea that it's coming from above, it's not something from down below that we're mustering and summoning and drawing from within ourselves. God is sending it down. It's His Spirit. It's His work. Or verse 8. Verse 8 is amazing. I, you know, I was, when I was walking my dog this morning before church, I was, uh, uh, I was just kicking myself. I'm like, I, I should have preached a whole sermon on verse 8. Verse 8 is so amazing. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. People being born again, it's like the wind blowing. You can't control the wind. It blows where it pleases. Do you see that language? The wind blows where it wants to blow. The wind blows where it chooses to blow. We don't, you can't tell where the wind came from. You don't know. It just kind of shows up. I mean, now with, you know, weather maps and satellites and things, we, we get a little more sense of where wind's coming from. But even with all our technology, we can hardly predict any weather. I mean, we're New Englanders. We know this. The wind blows where it comes from, and you don't know where it goes. You can't even see it. It's mysterious. And so God's Spirit blows where it wills. God changes hearts as He chooses. You, you know, you, you're sharing the gospel with someone for years, and it's just like talking to a wall. And someone else hears it once, and they believe in Jesus. What happened? Did, did, did the guy who shared the gospel with, with the guy who got it, did he say the gospel right? And the other guy who's been doing it for years, is he saying it wrong? The wind blows where it wills. God moves. God does as he wills. 
God is sovereign in salvation. Only God can change your heart as he wills. It's a a challenging doctrine. It sort of messes with my sense of being kind of in control of myself, which I don't like. The idea that God is sovereign over all things, that my salvation is ultimately God's doing at the very ground of it, underneath it. Yes, I repented and believed in Jesus. I made a decision for Jesus. But then when I look back and I say, but it's because the wind blew and changed my heart. Hmm. This is a hard, a hard truth, you know, this whole idea of, of God choosing, God electing, the wind blowing where it wants to. I know when I was in seminary, I was really wrestling with this. And uh, I, mean, I still don't feel like I've mastered this truth or I fully can explain it to you. But I remember I was in seminary, and I had a pastor friend talking to me. He called me up one time and just asked how I was doing and how I was wrestling with theology. And, and uh, we got onto this topic of God's sovereignty in all things. And, and I said, you know, this is really tough. And he's like, where are you? I go, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed up. And he laughed. And he said, you know, Jeremy, he goes, he said, I eventually came to a place in my life where I had to ask myself the question, is God God or is he not God? And if he's God then whatever he wants to do, he can do. And he doesn't owe me an explanation. He doesn't owe me anything. I owe him everything, but he owes me nothing. And if he's God, then part of the definition of God is being free and being sovereign to do as he pleases without needing to give me an electrical wiring chart to explain how it all works. He can just do as he wills because he's God. And we can be frustrated and we can shake our fist at the wind, you know, but the wind blows where it wills. Sort of, you know, you have family stories. There's a funny story in our family from when our kids were little. And my young, my oldest daughter, when she was probably like three, she didn't like wind. And, and we, there's this funny moment where she was standing out, I think it was out in front of her house, and the wind was blowing in her face. And she was shouting into the wind, no wind, no. And she didn't like the wind blowing. And that's how foolish it is. You know, we tell God, you can't do that unless you explain that. And how does that fit philosophically? The wind blows where it wills. God is sovereign. He is the Lord. He does as he pleases. This is a theme we're going to find all throughout John. All throughout John. But, you know, once you come to grips with that, once you humble yourself before the sovereignty of God, there's actually, I think, on the other side of it, a great joy and a peace that you receive. Once you, once you finally say, I don't fully understand it, but God is sovereign, the wind blows where it wills, I find it actually very liberating and very joyful in at least three ways. Number one, and, and I'll, I'll close with this, but the first way I find this liberating and, and joyful is that it encourages evangelism, which may sound funny, because you would think, well, if God blows where he wills, what's the point of preaching the gospel? Well, the point is that God blows through the gospel. And it's as the word is spoken, whether from a pulpit or one-on-one over coffee at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, that's when the Spirit blows is through his word. So what that tells me as a person who's trying to be an evangelist for Jesus is that my job is just to be faithful to the Bible. I don't have to change anyone's hearts because I can't. You know how exhausting it would be if I thought my job every Sunday was to stand up here and to come up with a convincing argument that would persuade skeptical New Englanders? No way. I'm just not that smart. I'm not that charismatic. I'm not that trained. 
So I just hold forth the Word of God and, and just say, blow and blow, and let God do what He will do. And I think it's encouraging for evangelism. If I was a missionary going to another country that was very close to the gospel, I wouldn't want to go thinking it was up to me to come up with the magic formula that would convince the people. Huh. You know, maybe, maybe for some genius, but I'm not that genius. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Blow, wind, blow. Do you what you will. It's very encouraging. for, And it means someone that you may have already given up on for the gospel, don't give up on them. Because you never know when the wind's going to blow. It could blow at any time. You don't know when it's coming or where it's coming or where it's going. Just be faithful to keep praying and loving and sharing the gospel and trust in the sovereign power of God. We can't control the wind, but we can pray to the one who controls the wind, and we can plead with him. Number two, I think this, this idea of God changing our hearts sovereignly is encouraging for me as a Christian when I fall into sin. You know, that's the thing. You, you become born again. You do love Jesus. You do love his word. You want to follow him, and yet you keep struggling with sin. It's been my experience. It's what we see in the scriptures. Peter, the apostle Peter, denies Jesus three times. You know, we, we fall away. We struggle and it's so encouraging to know that underneath all of my salvation is the sovereign power of God. That I'm a Christian ultimately because the wind blew, not because I figured something out. You know, if, if I thought the ground of my salvation was some alloy between God's power but Jeremy's figuring it out, I mean, what a disaster. Because I could turn away, I could break it. But underneath it all, even underneath my repenting and believing and deciding for Jesus is the move of God's Spirit. I just know that it's God. Oh, you know, what a disaster if, if my salvation was like the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that had a feet made of iron and clay mixed together, the iron of God's power but the clay of my human frailty. If that was the feet upholding my salvation, I know I would fall just like the statue did in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. No, I need God's power. It's so encouraging. Even when I fall away as a Christian, I can get back up and say, God has saved me. This is God's doing. There is still a love for Jesus in me. I can't believe it. Despite where I have gone, despite how far the sheep has strayed, I still find love for Jesus in me. God must be in this. I will get up. You know, like the, the prodigal son, I will get up and I will go back to my father because I know that it's his work in my life. It's not me piecing it together out of my own ingenuity. And finally, I find this doctrine so encouraging for anyone here who is not a Christian. You say, no, no, this is discouraging because it means that I don't know if the wind's going to blow on me or not. What, why even try? No, 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 this is encouraging because what this, what this truth does is, is it strips you of any sense of self-reliance. It's gone, you know? Stop thinking that you have anything to give to God. That's your biggest problem is that you think you have something. You know, this doctrine just strips you naked before God. So you say, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. Even my heart is messed up. And it puts you in that wonderful, life-giving place of blind Bartimaeus on the road, you know, crying out to Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. 
And so don't sit around wondering, is the wind blowing, is the wind not blowing? Just cry out to Jesus. Just look to him and, and recognize that, that, that you're so broken and sinful that even your own heart isn't something you can change, that God's power must be at least unleashed in your life. It's wonderful, this doctrine, because it causes us to throw ourselves completely on the mercy of him who controls the wind. And be encouraged, because even as you are crying out to Jesus, even as you're looking to him, don't you realize the wind is already blowing, even as you cry out? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that every person in this room would be born again, starting with myself. Lord, this year, today, would you give me fresh evidences in my own soul that I truly am born again? We want to, we want to do what the Apostle Paul said when he said, make your calling and election sure. Lord, I pray that you would give every real Christian in this room a fresh evidence of being born again, that you would do a fresh work of grace, that the wind would blow powerfully in their lives, that they might find their love for Jesus fanned back into flame, even if it had died down, even if it had become just a, a little ember, Lord. This 2012, Lord, would you send your spirit through our church and fan the flame of born-again Christians back into a roaring fire of love for you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who thinks that they are fine because of religion, because of spirituality, because of morality, because of their education, because of their personality, Lord, I pray that you would, you would just shake them down and take away all of those things that they're trusting in. Lord, may your spirit speak into their soul these words, they must be born again. And Lord, would you grant the new birth? Would you put a hunger in souls? Lord, I pray that you would break the hearts of the skeptics. Lord, that you would, you would soften those who are burned out on religion because they had a terrible experience as a child. Lord, I pray for those who, who think they know it all, that they would realize they know nothing. Those who think they have it all, they would realize they are bankrupt and penniless. Lord, those who think they, they, they see it all, that they're blind. And Lord, cause them to see the beauty of Jesus, who alone can change our hearts. Oh, Lord, we pray. We pray that this wind would not just blow on the people in this room, not even just the kids down in the nursery, Lord, not even just the kids up at camp. We pray for the South Shore of Boston, for a mighty gale, a nor'easter of your Spirit's power this 2012. Lord, our real longing in 2012 is to see a great revival, a great awakening on the South Shore. And so, Lord, we can't make that happen, but we call upon you, Jesus, you commanded the wind and the waves, and you command the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would send your sovereign spirit out in great power to many homes and hearts on the south shore of Boston. Lord, as names and faces right now are coming up in the minds of people here, of people we are concerned for, Lord, would you send your spirit to those places? And God, make us faithful. Make us faithful to your gospel, we pray. May we see a great fruit this year in 2012. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.